0: From Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity, this is The Pastor's Table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The Pastor's Table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Rev. Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to The Pastor's Table. We are glad you're joining with us again. My name is Mark Quanstrom.
1: And my name is Tara Beth Leach, and over our last couple of episodes, we have been exploring this topic of theological integrity, and we've been slowly setting the table. And I just want to reflect back for a few moments to continue setting the stage or setting the table for us and on how we've arrived to this moment, why we're here, why theological integrity matters. And I've been thinking a lot about my journey um, as a pastor and in ministry over the last 20 years. And you know, Mark, I, I came of age, if you will, or I started to blossom um, in the early 2000s. And I was a student at Olivet Nazarene University and a professor who I still love so much uh, took us on a field trip. We, we drove about an hour and a half up to a suburb in Chicago, Illinois called Barrington. Now, there in Barrington is a pretty big church.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard of it.
1: Yeah, Willow Creek Church. And we went up to observe some services and take notes as students, and I very quickly became a student of Willow Creek. I became a student of Bill Hybels, and I became a student of the mega church movement and the church growth movement. In fact, with my tradition, we had a church growth school. Um, pastors, they would they would come and they would come to churches and they would say, here's here's the levers that you need to pull. Here are the things that you need to do to grow your church. And so for me, I remember the first time in Barrington, Illinois, sitting in the, I don't know, was it 10,000 person Auditorium.
0: It's a big auditorium. It's
1: a big auditorium. I remember sitting in there the first time and you know, this is early two thousands, and so this was just so wild. There were there was, you know, the smoke machines and the lights and the music was just pristine, incredible. And then Bill Hybels, you know, gets on the platform and he begins to preach. And he had a flip chart and markers. Oh wow. Yeah. He was using a flip chart and markers. That was kind of like a a Bill Hybels um a thing you know okay. he made flip charts cool and so and i remember thinking okay so we've come up here for a field trip to observe and to study and we went back and we talked about how great it was and what a great experience it was and that formed within my imagination that that was the epitome of success right. so what did i do i started to follow pastors who who were modeling that for me. I started right. to follow pastors who had large churches, right? who had um, large congregations, you know, the, the ABCs of the empire that we've talked about right. in the last episode, attendance, building, and cash. And I thought, if I want to be a pastor that is um, successful...
0: Right, which we all want to be.
1: Right. Then I've got... To do what they do, I've got
0: exactly right.
1: I've got to learn from them, and so I started reading as much as I could. And a lot of these books were um, they were helpful, um, and also not very theologically robust. A um, little bit more on the pragmatic side there of were. of here are the things that you need to do. Um, things that had their foundation in what we now know as the homogeneous church growth method. Um,
0: they never articulated. They that. They never
1: would articulate it right? as that.
0: But that's what they were doing.
1: That's what they were doing, and it's still something that we see today. Okay, so so I'm looking at um, a list right now that you put in front of me just a few moments ago, Mark, that you you created a list of pastors in the last I don't know twenty or so 20. years. It's it's a pretty Only long list, years. right? It's a pretty long list. You know, we've we've got some of the big ones on there. We see Mark Driscoll on there. We see, you know, uh, the SBC on there. Uh, we see Bruxy Cavey on there. We see Jerry Falwell Jr. on there. So we've got this list of pastors. Now, these were pastors that I followed. We even see Brian Houston on here. Uh, these were pastors that I followed, that I w- that I was a student of because why? Because when I was coming of age... I bought into this notion that these guys were successful and that in order to be a impactful pastor, an influential pastor, to make a quote-unquote kingdom impact, mm-hmm. I had to emulate and model these guys. Now, something started to happen in recent years. I, I, I wouldn't say it's a new phenomenon, but I would say it is a... Definitely something that feels very um, like it's God is doing something. God is doing something.
0: Yeah. God is doing something. That's an interesting way of saying it.
1: Yeah. The curtains are being pulled back. Okay. So mid-early 2000s, a lot of the names on this list of these pastors that I followed began to have pretty significant moral failures. I will never forget 2016, 2017. Now, keep in mind, I just shared my story in our last episode uh-huh. how I was I was pastoring a church in Southern California and uh, trying to be faithful to the to the kingdom vision of what God had called me to and things were crumbling all around me. Things were crumbling Things were painful. People were leaving the church. And at the same time, this church that so many of us were crowning as the epitome of success were also starting to crumble, but for different reasons. And what we learned is that behind the scenes of these churches were some pretty dark things happening. Now, we could say, well, these were just bad actors, right? These were just bad actors. These, these pastors are just bad actors. Or we could say, could there be more happening? Are they part of a culture and a system that we've all either been um, active participants in or complicit or we've, we've participated in shaping this? And, and then if, if you la- had just to add another layer to this, I'm looking at another graph that you put in front of me, Mark. It's Americans. um, It's a historical and cultural um, graph that shows the confidence that Americans have had in the church in the last 40 years. Okay, so 40 years ago, it was up to 70% of Americans had had confidence in the church. That's pretty good. Pretty amazing. That means that they had confidence in clergy. Mm-hmm. They had confidence in their local churches. They had confidence even in public pastoral leaders. We are now down to
0: 37%. Yes.
1: That's a pretty sharp decline. Okay. So, what we're seeing is we're seeing these Americans that are standing in the rubble of what they once considered as successful and trustworthy and something that they could put their confidence in. And now they're saying, actually, I, I don't know if I can. Something's, something's not right. And I have a lot of friends. I'm a millennial. I'm a geriatric millennial, 40 years old, but I'm a millennial. And a lot of my friends have since walked away from the church they are deconstructing, and they're saying something's something's not right. So we can say, is it is it just the bad actors, or is there something bigger at play? You know, I think back to um, in twenty sixteen I was I was having some real uh, troubling physical symptoms. At one point, I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I convinced myself that I had all sorts of different things, according to WebMD. But the symptoms were that um, I was having difficulty breathing. I was always exhausted, always so, so tired. Um, I could hardly go up a single flight of stairs without feeling like I was going to pass out. And I knew something wasn't right. I knew that something was off in my body. So I went to the doctor, we ran all sorts of tests. Um, Thank goodness it wasn't cancer, it wasn't anything super major, but I did have something called iron deficient anemia. And so my body uh, did not have the proper amount of iron um, to create um, the hemoglobin and to create a healthy flowing blood system that my body needed. Um, it was having trouble moving oxygen around. And so so I was just exhausted all of the time. I was anemic. and so but the symptoms were, you know that that I was exhausted and I, I knew something that wasn't right. We have so many people standing around, you know, something's not right. We, we know that the context is rapidly changing. We see that the confidence in the church is is at a low. Uh, we're hearing about all of these moral failures. We have the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We've watched Harvest Bible Chapel. We've watched Willow Creek. And we know that something's not right. Mark, could it be that we have an anemic vision for what it means to be the church? Could it be That we have replaced a theological vision um, rooted and grounded in the tradition of the church, in the historic church, uh, rooted and grounded in a biblical vision. Could it be that we have replaced it with something else, with other things? Which brings us to this pastor's table, why we're here. We, we want to see a robust theological vision, not an anemic one. I think we have an anemic theological vision for mm-hmm. what it means to be the church. We have an anemic theological vision for what it means to be pastors. And so could you just unpack for us a little bit what you mean when you say theological integrity?
0: So I have my own Bill Heibel's Pilgrimage Before I talk about theological integrity, yeah. So I'm pastoring Southern Illinois, and um, I'm getting pressure from my denomination uh, to evidence justify my work, justify myself as a pastor by the metrics that we've talked about, Mm -hmm. right? The ABC metrics, and um, but it's it's mostly mostly centered in growing the church numerically, Mm -hmm. and so of course you got to you look around and say, well, who's doing it? And Bill Hybels was doing it. I mean, it was amazing what he was doing. So we made our pilgrimage. I, Debbie and I went up to Willow Creek on one of our vacations. We stopped in there, went to a midweek service, uh, the Believer's Service, I think it was, um, sat in a big auditorium. And well, when I first drove on the campus, I thought, this, this doesn't even look like a church. This is like, this is like a corporate headquarters. And went in and just observed, walked around, talked to a few folk, <clears throat> and left and realized that what Bill Habels was doing was not what I was doing. That whatever I was doing, it wasn't what he was doing, and that we were living in two really different worlds. So um, I thought, well, but he's successful. I mean, he's doing it up here in the suburbs of Chicago. So we have to do it the, his way. And so I began conforming my ministry to the Willow Creek model, mm-hmm. and I did it. I don't know how long I did it. So we started, you know, incorporating dramas into the into the worship service and. Um, I began preaching without a pulpit. I mean, uh, Bill Hybels was an incredibly compelling preacher. So much. And so I started listening to his sermons, and I never cribbed any, but I started, you know, th- trying to learn how to preach like Bill Hybels. Um, I don't remember how long I did it for, um, but eventually realized that um, I was wearing Saul's armor, so to speak.
1: Mm.
0: It wasn't fitting. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fitting with. My theology, what mm-hmm. my denomination's soteriology was, mm-hmm. it made sense in a populist Reformed American evangelicalism mm-hmm. soteriology, mm-hmm. which is transactional, and but in my tradition, which which salvation is a call to sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, that that the beginning of salvation, the end of salvation, is not, quote unquote, getting saved. Mm-hmm. The point of salvation is being formed into Christ likeness. I was doing, I was practicing church out of a reformed soteriology, mm-hmm. not 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 a reformed soteriology in its richness and its depth, but the popular American kind of mm-hmm. transactional soteriology, which was antithetical to what I said I believed. Mm. it took me a while to realize that and that how I was doing church was undermining what I said we believed.
1: Yeah
0: The point of theological integrity, the point the reason for that name, that is not in reference to the integrity of the pastor. Theological integrity, is a term that refers to the integrity between the practice of a church, the pragmatic, the practice of a church, and its theological convictions, and the church's theological convictions. Right. I am interested in uh, churches that work out of uh, their theology, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm interested in churches practicing church in such a way. That it reinforces what they say they believe. Right. So that's the origin of the phrase theological integrity. Are we doing church in ways that reinforce what we say we believe, or are we doing church in ways that undermine what we say we believe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in my particular tradition, um, our models have not been. Our model was not John Wesley.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Our model w- were quote unquote, Bill Hobbles, mm-hmm. which is fine. Mm-hmm. Bill Hobbles can do church however Bill Hobbles wants yeah. to do. I just realized that he was working out of a different soteriology than I was. Yeah. So I realized this this these clothes aren't fitting me. Mm-hmm. I am not. I am not being the person God has called me to be. Right. And and so that probably was 30 years ago the beginnings of me reflecting seriously on is what we're doing in church reflective of what we say we believe. Right. Um, regarding this anemic vision, this anemic theological vision, I'd like your I like your analogy.
1: Well, you know, I think what you're saying, again, is so these moral failures that we're looking at, this is not just bad actors, but this is is symptomatic of a larger crisis is what I'm trying to say.
0: That's my interpretation of what's going on as well.
1: It's symptomatic of something much bigger. We are just seeing parts of the wounds, but this is this is this is much bigger. Yeah.
0: So, if success in the American church, regardless of tradition, is more people in the, in the pews, then the pastor is going to do whatever it takes to grow his or her church. Right. Right. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Yep. So, our denomination was is very interested in institutional growth, mm-hmm. and we would get a magazine once a month called Grow Magazine, mm-hmm. and they would have the latest or the most recent. A star in our tradition, mm-hmm. our denomination. Mm-hmm. And it would come in a cellophane wrapper. Mm-hmm. And I would unwrap it and I would read it. And I would read about what all these other folk were doing mm-hmm. that I could not do.
1: Mm-hmm. The fastest growing churches in America. Yep. And I largest, would get depressed. Yep.
0: And I would second guess myself. Mm-hmm. And I would think maybe I need to mimic. Mm-hmm. Right? mm mm-hmm. um, and eventually I realized I didn't have to open that magazine. Mm-hmm. So I would get the Grow magazine from our denomination and I would never take it out of the cellophane wrapper. I'd throw it in the trash mm-hmm. and I would do better, right? Yeah. So I'm doing a series of clergy training across the provinces of Canada mm-hmm. 10 years ago mm-hmm. in our denomination. And I'm going from New Brunswick, I mean, Nova Scotia to New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Um, and I shared that story that I started throwing the Grow magazine in the trash and every pastor in every one of those five different conferences applauded that was an <laughs> applause line when i gave them permission to yes. ignore our denominational yes. instruction yep. it was the only applause line i got yep. i was talking about holiness soteriology yep. but when i said th- i threw away the grow magazine they, they loved it they'd nobody given permission yeah. to so so if institutional growth is the measure then we're going to do whatever it takes to grow a church, which means maybe compromise without, I mean, there's no malice here. There's no perniciousness here. No, But just the pressure from above and the pressure from below. Our people want to be part of an adventure. They want to be a part of an exciting church. They want to see new converts. They want to hear the stories too. So this isn't just from denominational leaders. Right. This is from the church that has embraced that definition of success as well. That's right. Right. So, so you're a pastor squeezed yep. in a vice, and um, I see the coercive, the moral failures of some of these pastors. They're not. It's not all sexual. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, abuse of power. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I see uh, these folk as culpable for sure, but also victimized mm-hmm. by the system.
1: Hey friends, in the last 10 minutes of this episode, we talk about suicide. We understand that suicide is a sensitive and difficult topic, and so we wanted to be sure you knew that it was coming.
0: And so what I did not put on this list are pastors who have taken their own lives. Wow. Which is another story. Yeah. That needs to be talked about.
1: Another symptom
0: it's another symptom another, we, symptom, another of the symptom of the crisis so my interpretation of moral failings among pastors whether it be uh, abusive power leadership moral failing or uh, indiscreet relationships uh, um, moral failings relationally my interpretation of that is these are pastors looking for a way out
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. they're looking for a way out they don't they don't want to so, so if they want to sabotage their ministry, make it impossible for them to come back into the ministry. Sexual indiscretion is one of the fastest ways to do it. Yeah. And so they're also looking for escape valve. They're also looking for some respite. They're looking a yeah. self. It's a
1: self-medication in some in ways. It's a form of
0: self-medication. We haven't talked about numb the pain, substance abuse yeah. among yep. pastors. Yep. So... Um, uh, I don't know. So, so the so the pastors' table is designed to be a space where pastors can talk about how it is God is calling them to exercise their giftedness and their calling in their particular vote in their particular place, right. indifferent to what God is doing right. in other places. Right. And it, this pastors' table is a rejection of the anemic definition of success that the American church has embraced yes I have a really sad story I don't know if I should tell it now but I have a sad story about a pastor who did um, his life was ended because yeah. he could not should I tell that story yeah um, Southern Illinois pastoring of people and a very sensitive uh, a sensitive man came to faith under my leadership in that church um, uh, intelligent, devout, committed Christian, felt a call to preach, felt, believed that he should go into the pastorate. Second career pastor, um, military retired. And I began, um, mentoring Tom. I trust the call of God in people's lives. And I began mentoring Tom. I was a little nervous that he might be a little too sensitive to be in the pastoral ministry, um, I hope that's understood. He just he just was very tender. Mm, mm-hmm. And you have to be a little tough to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. He's very tender. But he went, got an MDiv mm. from Covenant in St. Louis. He was a part of Belleville First. Uh, I love Tom. Yeah. Um he was credentialed. Um and he took a small church in Southern Illinois, south of Belleville, about an hour. And little tiny church with the kind of relational dynamics that small family churches have. Um, Not a little dysfunction in this little church. Mm -hmm. Um, Very little return for his labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know how hard it is. I mean, how do you measure, quote unquote, success in a church if you're not counting bodies? And
1: if Tom is getting Girl Magazine every month and he's opening that up and he's saying, well, I'm not that. I must be a failure. What's wrong with me?
0: Yeah, and if he's being quote-unquote ineffective according to the American model for church, um, he's getting more and more discouraged. Mm -hmm. He's getting more and more depressed. Mm -hmm. And who does he talk to? Does he talk to me who has evidence of success? Not explosive, exponential growth, but steady Steady growth. Who does he talk to without saying, I'm a failure? Right. Right. So he doesn't. Right. He just absorbs it. He's alone. I have my own stuff going on. I'm not calling Tom every week to see how he's doing. And so one morning his uh, wife wakes up and uh, there's a note on the kitchen counter. And the note says, I quit. Hmm. And he's gone. She calls me at four in the morning or five in the morning, says, Pastor, Tom's gone. Mm. And I said, I don't know what that means. And she said, he's gone. He's left. He left me a note. I quit. And um, for the next three months, we followed Tom around the country by virtue of the postmarks on the envelopes of his assets that he was sending back to his wife. Oh, God. Wow. And he didn't communicate with her again. And... Um, was eventually uh, hit by a truck in an interstate in Alabama. Um, we're not sure how it was he ended up on the interstate. Mercy, mercy. And I preached his funeral. Mm. Okay, I preached his funeral. We were at the funeral home because a lot of pastors from the district came. We love Tom. Uh, I think more of us identified with Tom than would... We would have ever cared to admit. Um, and uh, after the funeral sermon, in which I preached the funeral of one of my best friends to his wife and two children, and our church and the clergy on our district, um, a person came up to me after the funeral service and said, You preached to a full house today. Mm. That was his comment on the funeral. Mm-hmm. You preached to a full house today. Hmm. I thought this is what you're measuring. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. what you think is is to my credit mm-hmm. that I preached to a full house. I didn't say a word. I just looked at this person, and I thought in my head, you know, if the room is small enough, you can pack. You can preach to a packed house every Sunday. But that was how much. This model of more persons equals success ha- impacted, is impacting our pastors.
1: That's right. That's right. So we're forsaking a lot, including our own souls.
0: We are selling our souls. We don't sell our souls all at once,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we sell our souls a little piece at a time.
1: A little piece at a time. And it shows up, you know, these pastors that are being squeezed with the pressure. You know, we I hear stories of pastors working 70, 80 hours a week. They have um, to produce. They have to produce. Marriages are falling apart. Um, children um, are being left in the rubble. And we're seeing moral failures. And then we're seeing systems. I mean, we could go on about what else we're forsaking. We're seeing systems that are, you know, continuing to hurt people groups.
0: Oh, gee whiz, Yes.
1: We're seeing pastors get in bed with political groups and power, um, all because we are bowing down to the altar of success. We're, we're obsessed. We are in love with success.
0: It's an American model for success. And uh, Paul's admonishment in Romans 12, I always read as a personal a challenge, a personal admonishment, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. In my tradition with an emphasis on individualistic soteriology, I read most of the ethical instruction as to be taken personally. Mm -hmm. Um, But Paul's writing to the church at Rome. He's he's writing to individuals, obviously, but he's writing to the church when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Mm -hmm. And it has dawned on me, dawned on me, I don't know how many years ago, that the culture accommodation that Paul was talking about in Romans 12 was in reference to a church accommodating itself to the culture. Mm -hmm. And my own hunch is in a quote-unquote Christian culture, which uh, many Christians, many many evangelicals still yearn for or think we still live in, in a quote-unquote Christian culture, there's less critical analysis Mm -hmm. of how a church might be conformed to the culture Mm -hmm. if it's quote-unquote Christian. Yeah. And so um, this the, the church not being critical of how it might be being formed by an American corporate culture is one of the reasons we find ourselves where we are.
1: And there is the mic drop. That's right. Powerful. And that's why we're here at the pastor's table.
0: So we are wanting to come alongside pastors to liberate them to do work the way that God the Holy Spirit wants to do that—that that the, the Lord's work through them. And we're here to help pastors reject this evidenced, destructive way of doing church.
1: So we've set the table. Uh, we've, we've talked about what's at stake, why this matters, why we're here, why we care about this. And now what can those who are going to join us in this journey, what can they expect well, a few things. We will be talking about some really big ideas of what we believe has been forsaken, or theological ideas that we think that we've had a bit of a anemic vision. Um, and we'll set the table, and we'll talk about that. And then we're gonna we're gonna have pastors join us at this table, and we want to talk to pastors around the country. To hear how they're working through some of these things, to hear some of their stories, and to hear how they have been able to practice theological integrity in their local churches.
0: Because, uh, as we said in an earlier podcast, uh, we're not the experts. Right. The Lord is calling us all forward to do church in this time mm-hmm. in uh And so we are seeking out the counsel of other pastors.
1: The priesthood of all believers.
0: This is a practical outworking of the theological conviction that God the Holy Spirit works in all people. Priesthood of believers.
1: So I hope you join us on this journey. I hope you join us in this journey of working this out with fear and trembling. Um, We have a lot of questions. We had a lot. We have a lot of wonderings. We have a lot of doubts and fears, but we need each other. We need the voices of other pastors who've gone before us, of of pastors who are also working this out with fear and trembling. And I hope you'll I hope you'll do that with us.
0: Here's how you can join us at the table: subscribe to the podcast. 30 minute episode will be released every week, and we don't want you to ever miss a chance to join the formative conversation. And extend the conversation with a ministry friend. Think of a friend in ministry who could benefit from this conversation. Each week, we'll provide discussion questions to prompt further dialogue between fellow pastors. And join the conversation. Go to thepastorstable.com to share with us your experience in ministry and what theological convictions you would like to see the pastor's table explore.
1: So next week we'll be inviting Dr. Beth Felker-Jones to the table to talk about implications of the incarnation. And so until next time, may God bless you as you serve faithfully in the gift of ministry God has granted you.